Open your Bibles to Philippians 2. Philippians 2, we're going to be in verses 12 to 13 this morning. Philippians 2, 12 to 13. I was CPR certified some time ago and was taught all of the many things that you have to do, uh, chest compressions, and back then there was mouth-to-mouth resuscitation and the Heimlich maneuver and all of the many signs of life and things that you're supposed to check for and all of this. I was taught all of those things and I received a little card from the American Heart Association and it was little card that goes in your wallet that says that you are certified. And it was a two-year certification, I think. But that's lapsed, long since lapsed. But at the same time, the principle still remained. I knew how to give CPR and do all of those things that you're supposed to do, which is good and right. And yet I found myself one night on a work trip in a former life, out on a porch in this hotel with other co-workers, and we're sitting around a table, there's a girl sitting next to me. Her name was Angela. She was telling a story. We were all talking and sharing stories and things like that and laughing and having a good time. And all of a sudden, someone across the table from from me said, Angela! Like, really shocked. Like, somebody's got to do something. And I looked over at Angela, who in the middle of speaking had just stopped. The only time in my entire life that I've ever seen someone not cough, not choke like you normally do on food or water or whatever, but just go completely silent. Her face went blue from top to bottom. Instantly. And I stood up, and I put my hand on her shoulder, and I did nothing else. I was frozen from head to toe. All of the training, the certification, didn't matter It just left me. I didn't know what to do. I was frozen. And I remember somebody in the group yelling, Do something! And still, I was just shocked. My feet didn't move at all. I couldn't get them to move if I wanted to. And somebody ran around her and grabbed her around the stomach, around the abdomen, and forced the obstruction out of her mouth. And she (gasps) breathed again, and color came back to her face. And I just stood there shaking. I did nothing. I felt helpless. I felt like an idiot, to be honest with you. Like I had this certification probably in my wallet at the time. And yet, it was virtually useless because it wasn't actually put into action. Our passage this morning in Philippians 2, 12 to 13, Paul is going to urge the Philippians to work. And he's going to define what work actually is, what it looks like, and why we should work. It's just two verses, Philippians 2, 12-13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work.
for his good pleasure. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we consider this word that is before us, these two short but powerful verses, I pray that you would motivate us, move us to work. That we would see the truths of Scripture in here. That you would move us to what it is that you want us to be and do. I pray for all of those here that you would open our hearts to understand what is written in your word, to apply it directly to our lives, that we may be changed having encountered you through your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You'll notice that the first word in our passage this morning in verse 12 is therefore. And as always, we've got to remember what Paul has just said so that we can see what it is therefore, right? That's what that means. So Paul has been laying out for the Philippians what it means exactly to live a Christ-centered life, a life that is centered on Christ, that is Christ firmly placed in the middle. And what we've seen thus far is that the truth of the gospel has taken center stage for Paul, and he wants that to be true for the Philippians as well. We, as God's creation, were created with the intention of being glory bearers. That is our purpose, to bear God's glory on the earth. And yet, we have sinned and fallen short of His glory. And so Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, came to earth. He lived a perfect life. That is, He perfectly bared the glory of God on the earth. He lived a perfect life. But He died in our place. And He did so to pay the penalty for our sins. He was raised on the third day. He was, in His resurrection, validated His atonement for us. It proved that He actually paid the penalty for sin since He didn't remain dead. And He promised to us eternal life by the grace of God through faith in Him. So as you might imagine, if that is what Paul's understanding of the Gospel actually is, that you can have eternal life through Christ, then you can see why He gives His life to it. And you can see why it becomes the most important thing that Paul could ever possibly teach anyone else. That he would even lay his life down for it. And that he spent so much of his time giving it to people and helping them to understand it as well. Paul is telling the Philippians, listen, there's nothing better that you could spend your life doing than dedicating it to this message. Why? Because literally, eternity hangs in the balance. That's why. Because what comes on the other side of death is an eternity of something. It could be an eternity of life, or it could be an eternity of death. And if that's the case, then it's worth you giving your time and attention to. It's worth you placing all of its imperatives right in the middle of your life. So what he tells them, which is, I really think, the center of this book is in chapter 1, verse 27. He says this, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And what he means by that is that they're to be unified in their belief in the gospel, they're to be unified in their mission, and they are to be unwavering against cultural pressure. It's not to change them. But then as we saw last week, Paul tells them, that the key to this kind of, of unity in the church 
The key to having the same mind, having the same love, being of one accord, the key is having the mind of Christ. He perfectly embodies that way of living. How do we know that? Because He came to earth and He gave Himself for people that did not deserve salvation. That's why. He perfectly embodied that kind of self-sacrificing love. In other words, the unity inside the church, the ability to put aside differences, to accept one another, is for each person to adopt that same kind of posture that we see modeled for us in Jesus Christ on His way to the cross. So he tells them in verse 5, in chapter 2, verse 5, "...have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus." It's given to you. It's yours. And he then goes into, from verses 6 to 11, the example that Christ left. He was equal with God, but yet he took on the form of a servant and humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The implication of all of this is that since we have the same Spirit of God, Christians, dwelling inside us, the same Spirit that enabled Christ to exercise that level of love and humility, that should also empower each individual Christian inside the church and the church collectively as a body to the same kind of love and humility. It's that that leads Paul to now exhort the Philippians to action. Because this is true of Christ, And because this same mind of Christ is yours, therefore, and he commands them first to work toward unity and self-sacrifice in the body of Christ. That's the first thing he commands. Work toward unity and self-sacrifice in the body of Christ. I realize we don't have a screen behind us, but that would be on the screen if we did have a screen behind us. We're playing left-handed this morning. That's okay. I write left-handed, so I'm good. It's good. Work toward unity and self-sacrifice in the body of Christ. Look at verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, he gives this general exhortation to them to work out their salvation with fear and trembling, and we'll look at a specific one that he gives next week to not grumble and complain, but that's next week. For now, he gives them this command that they're to work out their own salvation. Now, again, there are things in this verse that can, can kind of trip us up or can, can cause us to misunderstand what he's actually saying, much like what we saw last week. When Paul says to work out your own salvation, he's not telling them to work for their own salvation. That's not what he's saying to them. Or even that salvation can be had if they're just good enough or if they work for it. That's not what he's telling them. It's important to remember the train of thought that he's already established in this book. Because if we do, then we'll see that earning our own salvation is impossible. And Paul has already ruled that out of possibility. That can't be done. Take, for example, Philippians 1, verse 6. Look back there in your word with me. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He who began the good work in you is not you. All right? 
He who began a good work in you is God Himself. And Paul is confident that not only did He begin it in you, but that He's going to bring it to completion. Or what about Philippians 1.29? For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake. So the idea that God could begin the work in them, like He says in verse 6, but then somehow they could then work to earn their own salvation would be logically inconsistent. That's not at all what he's meant. The idea that belief in Christ could be granted to them, that's what he says in 129, belief could be granted to them by God, but then somehow they could earn their own salvation would also be inconsistent. And all of that comes before the very next sentence where he says in our passage where he says God works in them to will and to work which we'll talk about in just a minute. What's safe to conclude is that Paul is not telling them that their salvation can be worked for or earned or merited in any way. That's not what he's saying. Well, what is he telling them then? He's returning to his earlier comment in 127. Look back there. Put your eyes on 127 with me. He says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And remember I said that this command really is the central focus of the entire book. This is what Paul wants for them to do. Let their life be lived in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. I think this is the impetus behind the whole letter. The reason that he's writing to them in the first place. It's the very reason that I entitled this series, The Christ-Centered Life, because he's wanting them to think this way. Their lives are to be gospel-centered. They're to be Christ-centered. But the reason that we know he's calling our attention all the way back to 127 is because the parallels between verse 12 in our passage this morning and 127. Look at them. So that whether I come and see you or am absent. That's what he says in verse 27. So that whether I come see you or am absent. And then look in verse 12 of chapter 2. As you have always obeyed, so now not only in my presence, but much more in my absence. So in chapter 1, he's talking about coming to them again. That's what he, he's wanting. He's wanting to tell them he's in jail, he's in prison. He says, look, I'm convinced I'm going to be released and I'm going to come to you again. But whether I'm present or absent, let your lives be lived in a manner worthy of the gospel. And now, he go, or then, right after that, he goes off on what might be considered maybe a tangent, like we're all prone to do. But he goes off on what he means by letting their lives be lived in a manner worthy of the gospel. What does that actually look like? But then we get to verse 12 of chapter 2, and he returns to this thought. Therefore, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. He's pushing them toward the same thing that he started back in 127. Living their lives in a manner worthy of the gospel is working out their own salvation. And in the context, what he's talking about is living, living their lives in a manner worthy of the gospel and working out their own salvation is putting into action what they said they believed about the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's telling them, look, you, you say over here you believe this. Now, put it into action. Actually do those things. Live those things out. Work in such a way. 
The point is the Philippians are not being charged to work for their salvation, but they're to live out their salvation. What is it that you say you believe? Are you living it out? They're to demonstrate the salvation they claim. That salvation is both personal. It's, he says, their own salvation. But it's also corporate. It's seen in their unity of belief, in their commitment to the mission of the gospel, and their being of one mind. And they're to do this, he said, with fear and trembling. There are several places where Paul uses this phrase, fear and trembling, and I think it helps us understand what he means. Now, the passages are not going to be behind me on the screen, so you're going to have to listen really close as I read these, okay? 1 Corinthians 2, 3, he says, and he's talking to the Corinthians, and he says, and I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. Ephesians 6, 5 to 6, he tells bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling. But he says after that, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. You see what he's saying there? He's telling them, as you would Christ, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling. But then 2 Corinthians 7.15, he says, And his affection for you is even greater, and he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. You understand what, what he's saying? He's talking about receiving Titus. And he's saying he's a messenger of the gospel. He's coming. And they received him with fear and trembling. Fear and trembling for who? For Titus? No, Titus is like young and meek and mild. And that's not who he's talking about. Fear and trembling the Lord whom they're serving by receiving Titus. In each case, this fear and trembling that Paul uses is done by the one who's looking through the service that they're doing to the God on the other side of the service. You understand? He's looking past what they're actually doing in the here and now to seeing that they're serving God on the other side. That's what causes their fear and trembling is its awe and reverence at God whom they're actually serving. In the 1 Corinthians passage, when he says, I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, Paul is serving the Corinthians but he says that he was with them in weakness and fear and trembling. And then after that, he says this in verses 4 and 5 of that same passage in 1 Corinthians 2. He says, And my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Why is Paul ministering to the Corinthians in fear and in trembling because of the fact that he's recognizing God is using him as a messenger of the gospel to the Corinthians. And God is actually using his power through Paul and working his power, demonstrating his power through Paul that brings about a deep-seated kind of fear and trembling. It comes from being awed in what God has done and is continuing to do through him. Which is exactly why he tells the Philippians next, your work is a sign of God's work in you. Your work is a sign of God's work in you. That would be the second point that pops up on the screen behind me. So look at verse 13. He says, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. 
So in other words, the reason that they are to live out the salvation that is theirs with fear and trembling is because they're recognizing something that is ultimately true about their working. And it's this, God is the one working in them. That's the reason that there's a fear and trembling about their work in the body is that they're recognizing that God is the one working in them. The creator of the universe is the one working in them to do that. So the fear and trembling comes because they're recognizing the greater reality that's at work here. The God of the universe is working in them. It's similar to when Paul comes to the Corinthians. He recognizes God is using him as a messenger of the gospel, as a demonstrator of God's own power. This brings Paul to the place of fear and trembling. So Paul is saying this very thing should be true of you. You should recognize that when unity of faith happens inside the church, when unity of mission is accomplished in the church, when you're united in mind and you grow together in Christ, you edify one another, you're happy with one another, you should know God is the one doing that. He's the one producing that. And that should humble you. Because you recognize He's the one doing it. It should bring you to a place of awe and reference because the King of the universe has taken up residence inside you and is changing you for the better to be conformed into the image of Christ. If you are in Christ, you're an ambassador of Christ. I want you to think about what it, what it means to be an ambassador for Christ. Just to be an ambassador, period. Just consider what the responsibilities of that are. You're, you're responsible to represent the king or, or perhaps a president or the highest dignitary in the land. You're to represent them. You're so, you're, you shed light on their name, whether good or bad. Regardless of what you do, your actions are going to shed light. It might be positive light or it might be negative light, but everything that you do as an ambassador sheds light on the person that you represent, on the name of your leader. Imagine what kind of responsibility that comes with. Now consider that you're not representing a president as a Christian, but you're representing the holy creator of the universe. That He began a good work in you, and He's bringing it about to completion, and in the meantime, you're His ambassador to everyone you meet. That He chose you as a representative of His glory to other people. That your actions are going to shed light on Him, whether it be a positive light or a negative light, but your actions are going to tell other people what He's like. Now, if He's working in our church in us as individual Christians, then we together as a church body are telling other people what his craftsmanship is like. What kind of creator is he? What kind of savior is he? What kind of merciful God is he? That's what we're doing as Christians, as a church body. We are representing him. Do you see the fear and trembling piece of this? There should be a bit of fear and humility that comes with that. Knowing that everywhere I go and everything that I do, I'm bearing the light 
of the Savior that I proclaim. That should bring us to a place of awe, fear, and trembling. But the second part of this is Paul explaining to the Philippians why they should work. Why should you work? And he says, because God is at work in you. He says, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. That means that God is the one empowering your work and is giving you the desire to work. That covers the whole spectrum. He's the one empowering my work, but he's also the one giving me the desire to work it out. It's not you mustering the desire and then God empowering the work. It's not you getting up in the morning and you're going, look, I really know I should be doing this, and you're kind of just mustering, white-knuckling your own desire and then Him empowering your work. Nope, that's not what it says. It's also not God giving you the desire to work and then turning it over to you to choose whether you work or not. It's not what it says either. He's both giving you the desire and empowering the work. It's the reason Paul says back at the beginning, He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Because He's producing the work toward Christ-likeness. He's the one doing that in you, giving you the desire and producing the work that produces the Christ-likeness. He's also the one producing the faith and the suffering that brings about the Christ-likeness. Look at 129. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake. It's been granted to you to believe. So He's produced that as well. Well, obviously, that leaves us with questions, doesn't it? First, am I working? Or is He working? Paul tells me to work. Am I working? Or is he working? And to that, the Bible's answer is yes. Which you hate that answer when you really want it to be a choice between the two. You hate it. But the answer is yes. I think it's helpful to, to think of what Paul is saying here as representing really two realities at the same time. One is the earthly reality where he is telling the Philippians, live out your faith. Where any pastor throughout your entire life has ever preached a sermon and said, live out your faith. That reality. You and I live in this reality, this earthly reality. We speak in this reality. You got up this morning and you chose to eat your frosted flakes and you decided what you were to wear this morning. Maybe you read your Bible, maybe you prayed, and you chose to do those things. Maybe somebody told you at one point, you should choose to do those things. And in this earthly reality, it is right for us to exhort one another, command one another, and say, choose to do those things. But then Paul wakes us up to another reality, a heavenly reality. It supersedes all other realities. And in this reality, God is the one at work in you, producing not only the work for his good pleasure, but also the will to work for his good pleasure. He's the one granting the faith. 
without which it is impossible to please him, as the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 11.6. He's the one beginning the work in us by grace, through faith. He's the one bringing it to completion. He's the one doing all of that. But when we think about this ultimate reality in which God is sovereign and is directing our willing and our working for His good pleasure, we often think to ourselves, what is the value of my work then? Not just a cog, just a, a robot. What is the value of my work? And I think there are a lot of answers that the Bible gives to that question, but the one that we're concerned with this morning is the one in this passage. Your work is a testimony of God's work. You're the ambassador, remember? Your work in this world is a testimony to the supernatural work that God is doing in you. That is the purpose of your work. It's bringing glory the glory of God to the world around you. That is the purpose of your work. Paul says, for, Paul says to the Philippians, work, for it is God who works in you. In other words, your work toward unity, your work toward self-sacrifice, your work toward oneness of mind with your brothers and sisters, your desire for peace, your will and work toward preserving faithful doctrine in the church, your unity in evangelism, your will to see others come to know Christ, your personal growth in love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, your obedience to the Lord is evidence of God's work in you. He began it. He's bringing it to completion. Your carrying it out is evidence that He is working in you. So it's right then for Paul to tell the Philippians, do something. Work. Strive. Move toward this. Do it, Philippians. But it's wrong for them to think that their work is earning their salvation. That God is only pleased with them if they can carry it out appropriately. Their work is a living out of the salvation that they already have. You understand that? It's a salvation they've already been given. It's strictly by the grace and mercy of the Lord that they're saved. Their work is a working out of that salvation that they already have. It's a testimony to the faith that the Lord has granted them. It's a testimony to the good work that He began and the work that He will see through to the end. This is a fundamental difference between one who is saved and one who is not. Both, let's say, go to the same church. Both give their hand-me-downs to goodwill. They do good work. Both try to be good parents or good students or good citizens and good neighbors. But one is working out his own salvation in fear and trembling, and the other is on the road that leads to hell. But sometimes on the outside, it looks identical. What's up with that? In some cases, 
The one on the road that leads to hell might even look better than the one who's saved. How is that possible? The difference is one is working for the Lord's good pleasure and the other is working to make either himself feel better, to make him or herself feel good enough or perhaps to earn his own salvation. Friend, listen to me. You will never be good enough. You can't earn it. There's nothing that you could ever do that God would say, all right, fine, I'll, I'll give it to you. That's not it. He begins the good work. He gives you salvation out of His grace and His mercy. Your righteousness is filthy rags. Sure, your good works might really be impressive to the person sitting next to you. They might outpace the person sitting next to you. And if you compare it to the people around you, you might receive a pretty good grade. But God does not grade on a bell curve. He never has, and He never will. Righteousness has an objective measuring stick. And it's not the people sitting next to you. The measuring stick of righteousness is God Himself. That's what righteousness is. Now ask yourself, will you ever live righteously enough you can't. It's impossible. Your righteous deeds are spoiled because they come from a heart that's tainted by sin of sin itself, the stain of sin. Paul reminds us, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So then the only thing we have left to do is to throw ourselves on the merciful feet of Christ who loved you and gave His own life to pay the penalty for your sin. The command to you is trust. Is it true? Is it enough? You're never going to be good enough. But Christ was in your place. Ask yourself, is that true? Is it true that Christ was good enough in my place? The command is trust that your good standing in the kingdom of God does not come by your own work or your own merit. You couldn't possibly earn it. It's not by the work of your hands, but by the work of Christ. So the good work that I do, work that truly pleases God, does not come from me. It couldn't come from me. It comes from Him working in me and through me, giving me both the desire and the work for His good pleasure. So then it's true what Paul says to the church at Galatia in chapter 2, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. Brothers and sisters in Christ, have you been to Jesus for the cleansing power? Are you washed in the blood 
of the Lamb? Are you fully trusting in His grace this hour? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Yeah, I know the hymns. Then do something. Get to work. Now, when I say that, you might be tempted to hear work and think, what do I need to do? Point me in the direction. And forget everything that I've just said. And think to yourself, I've got to pick up a rake. I've got to hold a baby. I've got to teach a kid's Sunday school class. All those are great things. We need help in all those areas. All those are good things that God puts in the hearts of His people. But if what Paul means by working out your salvation with fear and trembling means that you have to do manual labor inside the church, then there's a point where we're all going to age out of being able to work ourselves and uh, work out our salvation with fear and trembling, right? Because there's a point where our backs get tired and our hands wear out and we, we simply just can't do it anymore. That's not the only work that he has in mind here. The work that he has in mind is standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, not being frightened in anything by your opponents. It's being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. It's doing nothing, he says, from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility counting others more significant than yourselves. It's looking not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Or as we'll see next week, it's doing all things without grumbling or disputing. That's the work that he has in mind. He's not picking up a rake or holding children. All good things, we need those things. But that's not what he has in mind. It's, it's living that way with each other. Peace and love. Building one another up. Striving side by side for the gospel. That's the work. That's what God is doing in you. That's the work that he's doing in our church. But if you refuse that work, then what you're saying is, he's not at work in me. That's the impetus behind sharing the gospel. It's not simply because I was commanded to. I'm commanded to do a whole lot of things that I don't do. It's because he empowers the work. So if I say, no, to sharing the gospel. No to unity. Yes to grumbling and disputing. And I, and I do all the things that are antithetical to the work that he's describing here. Then what I'm saying is God is not at work in me. And what happens is it becomes evident to everyone around you. You know why? Because God is working in them. And they sing songs they don't like. They hear sermons that are too long. I mean, not here, but. <laughs> they have things that they don't like. There's a reason we grumble and complain, because there are things we don't like. But they walk away edified because, not because the music's so good, or because the preaching's so good, or because the passage was so good, or because they really got it right that time. They walk away edified because of the work God is doing in them through those things. And then they talk to you. And you insist on grumbling and complaining. 
And all they're met with is just that. And after a while, it starts to sound like a foreign language to them. Because all they hear is grumbling and complaining, and yet they're walking away edified. Now, you might be able to clearly recite doctrine. You might be able to stand firm in it and claim your feet are set on the bedrock foundations of the faith. But if you stand on doctrine, and yet it doesn't cause you to actually do something with it, it strives towards unity and peace and building one another up. If it only strives towards war and animosity and conflict, then it's worthless. You stand there while someone's choking with a CPR certification in your back pocket and you do nothing with it. What good is it? What good is all the doctrine that you believe that you can espouse if it doesn't cause you in fear and trembling to live it out? It's worthless. It's nothing. Because even the demons have that kind of doctrine. And it causes them to tremble. Yet, they don't believe. The command to us as a church body, we can't just stand on doctrine. We have to do something with it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray for every heart in here. I pray first and foremost for those who might be in here who have long since run away. Perhaps they grew up hearing, preaching, and teaching, reading Scripture maybe even. But as they've gotten older, it has been a thing of the past. Pray for the hearts of those who have tried to do it on their own, have struggled and strived to make you happy with them, and have just come up wanting and find themselves time and time again struggling in faith. I pray that you would open up their eyes to see the truth of the gospel. That in Christ, you have declared your love for them. You have set your affection on them. That you have brought them here to this time and place to reassure them of your love for them but also to move them toward action over faith and trust in the gospel. I pray that this would be the true beginning of a long journey of a life of faith for them. That you would bring them to repentance of sin, the sin of unbelief. They would confess it to you. That they would trust in Christ for real, that they would trust in Him and Him alone for forgiveness. That you would work in them, having begun that good work, that you would work in them to bring that to completion in the day of Christ. I pray that you would use us as a church body or maybe some other church body out there to do just that. I pray for others in here who might already know Christ and trust Christ, but yet be stuck in an attitude of, 
grumbling and complaining that you would correct them. That you would lead them towards striving side by side for the gospel in the world around us. I pray that you would use everyone in this body to build one another up toward love and good deeds. That we would all work toward unity. This would be the heartbeat of our church. Striving side by side for the gospel as it is preached and taught and lived out. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.